recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista getting here on Talk Show, sort of. I don't, re- I don't really know why I keep the designation for the program Krista Genier on Talk Show because it's really Krista Genier on Krista Genier and we still broadcast it on Talk Show. For the people on Talk Show, if, if, if you'd like and, and you obtain an account and are approved at KristaGenier.org, you could join the chat there. And you're more than welcome, unless you're a troll or a Jew or one of the other enemies of Christ. Christagonia has um, two new servers this week. I'm still waiting for delivery on a second one. We'll be growing and, and actually will be um, the, the budget won't be growing because I, I was able to obtain two servers for the price that, that are much larger for the price for the same price of two old servers which we had. and that's the way the business goes when um, there's new technology, it always seems to get cheaper. So Christagonia Radio, the, the um, Christagonia Live radio streaming radio station, which is the top player on Christagonia.org, is actually on a, on a new and bigger home now, on a much bigger server, and, and hopefully the quality of the connections will not, um, will, will, will not fall apart as more people connect to it. it. It'll maintain the quality better because the server has a lot more memory and it has um, more cores on the CPU. So hopefully it will hold up better. The second player is still on a larger server, though, and it's it's a higher quality stream. It's a 56 kilobyte per second stream rather than 32. So there might be the second player, the second stream, Christagenia Live Radio 2, is still um, surprisingly underutilized, even though I'm sure that it's a higher quality stream, or at least technically it's supposed to be. That's okay. I may be adding a fifth stream soon. I'm considering it, and that'll also be a, a, a stream for the live podcasts. If um, I, I find a decent software package that, that can more easily manage my streams remotely, I would run the live programs on all four servers. Uh, however, that's, um, I haven't, maybe I haven't just looked around hard enough yet. It's in the works that there'll be further improvements to Christagenia Radio down the road. Tonight I'm going to present the Prophecy of Amos, part four. I've been on, because of my, um, my late endeavors in challenging certain um, white nationalists and, and certain um, scoffers of the Bible into um, in, in demonstrating that we have we in Christian identity have the historical facts on our side. I've been using the prophecy of Amos as a platform to demonstrate the truth of the historicity of Scripture. I will be continuing that through the prophecy of Amos, through my presentations here, through at least this week and next, be, before um, moving on and actually concentrating on, on, on the, the religious and spiritual message of Amos himself. Now, there are nine chapters in Amos. This is our fourth week 
And tonight we'll just discuss a couple of verses. In the closing, the last part of in closing the last part of this presentation on Amos. We discussed some of the historical evidence of the ancient kingdom of Israel. Early in that presentation, we had seen the attestation of the text of the ancient Moabite stone. In it, we see the tribe of Gad mentioned explicitly and connected to the king of Israel. And in some of the same locations that the Hebrew Bible also places them. Where the Moabite stone says... Now the men of Gad had always dwelt in the land of Adaroth, and the king of Israel had built Adaroth for them. It agrees with the biblical book of Numbers in chapter 32, verses 1 through 4. This same inscription also mentions the Israelite king Omri. And the Assyrian, the Assyrian inscriptions mention Omri frequently. They actually call the deported Israelites the Bit Qamri, or the House of Amri in English. The Assyrian, Babylonian, and Persian inscriptions verify the historicity of many things in the Bible, which we shall see again as this presentation unfolds. We probably won't get to Persian inscriptions until next week. To imagine that all of the inscriptions attesting to the historicity of the Bible are somehow spurious is ridiculous. There is no doubting the veracity of a great number of these inscriptions, for the accounts concerning their discoveries are well recorded. The people that made such inscriptions, they were pagans. They had nothing extraneous to gain by making these inscriptions. And they could not have imagined that over 2,500 years later, these things would be dug out of the ground and found to verify accounts in an unrelated book which was to be passed down over so many centuries. Before proceeding, we should review the historical evidences of the Bible which were offered at the end of the last segment of this series on Amos last week. These evidences were taken from two notable Greek historians of the century preceding Christ. The last entries in Diodorus' Siculus' Library of History, I believe, have to do with um, certain events following the life of Julius Caesar, probably down to about 35 B.C. He had no Christian axe to grind. He had nothing to prove. Strabo, the geographer, he died in 25 AD, several years before the beginning of the ministry of Christ. He had no clue about Christianity and probably wouldn't have cared. He was a Stoic. He was a Greek pagan. While these men, being pagan Greek writers may not have thought about the Old Testament writings as we Christians do today. They nevertheless certainly accepted the historicity of what those writings contain. The Greek historian of the first century, B.C., Theodore Siculus, mentions Moses as a historical figure, and the Exodus 
as a historical event. He also accounted Moses as a founder of cities. Library of History, Book 40, Chapter 3, Paragraphs 3 through 8. He explained that Moses was a lawgiver and compared him to other famous ancient lawgivers such as the Cretan, Minos, the Spartan Lycurgus, Zalmoxis of the Gede, the Egyptian Sassikia, and the Persian Zarathustra. Library of History, Book 1, Chapter 94, Paragraph 2. Now, while he considered some of the laws attributed to Moses to be barbaric or perhaps misanthropic, and even xenophobic, actually the word is misozenic, it's xenophobic in the Loeb Classical Library, English in the Greek, it's misozenic, which means hostile to strangers. He nevertheless fully accepted their historicity. He may not have liked them, but he accepted their historicity. Library of History, Books 34 and 35, the fragments of the surviving fragments of books 34 and 35, paragraph 1, chapter 3, chapter 1, paragraph 3, I'm sorry, as it's enumerated in the Loeb Classical Library. And Diodorus Siculus used multiple historical sources. That's why it's called the Library of History. He compiled it from all of the best history books that he could obtain in his time. What is also evident is that Diodorus Siculus, and this is important, Diodorus Siculus, the pagan Greek writer, accepted the Exodus account as a significant part in the greater story of the founding of what we would call Western civilization. Diodorus quoted from the earlier Greek historian, Hecatahius of Abdera. He was a skeptic philosopher of the 4th century B.C., who gave a strange account of the Israelite exodus uh, from an ostensibly Egyptian viewpoint. The political spin, the other side of the coin, if you'll have it. Where he says, and I quote, the aliens were driven from the country, meaning Egypt, and the most outstanding and active among them banded together, and as some say, were cast ashore in Greece and certain other regions. Their leaders were notable men, chief among them being Danos and Cadmus. But the greater number were driven into what is now called Judea. The colony was headed by a man called Moses, outstanding, both for his wisdom and for his courage. Library of History. Book 40, Chapter 3, Paragraphs 1 through 3. Strabo, another Greek historian, Strabo the geographer, he's called. He considered Moses to be a historical figure. He wrote about him at length. He described him as being a pious and devout founder of a civil society in Judea centered around Jerusalem. 
Strabo's Geography, Book 16. Chapter 2, paragraphs 35 through 37. I'm going to read them momentarily. Like Theodorus Siculus, Strabo also counted Moses among those of his own list of esteemed prophets, lawgivers, and philosophers, whom he attributed with the beginnings of what we, once again, would call Western civilization. He listed him notably among those of the Romans, Greeks, Assyrians, Persians, Gede, and others. Strabo, Geography, Book 16, Chapter 2, Paragraph 39. When I read Strabo's Geography some years ago, I think it was um, 2004, I made a list in some of the volumes, not all of them, but at the beginning of the volumes, I made a list of all the authors that Strabo had available to him that he was quoting and making compilations of to present his geography, which is really a description of the world as it was known to the Greeks in the first century B.C. He quoted... In books 15 and 16 alone, Apollodorus, Megasthenes, Eratosthenes, Euripides, Sophocles, Pisander, Catesius, Onesicratus, Nearchus, Dimachus, Aristobulus, Aristotle, Theodectus, Simonides, Pindar, Timogenes, Plato, Clitarchus, Artemidorus, Nicholas of Damascus, whom Josephus also relied on. Polyclastus, Polycletus, I'm sorry. Aristus of Salamis, Apollonius, Heraclitus, Posidonius. Strabo, in two books of his 17-book seventeen-book geography, we have 17 books which survived. In two books, he quoted many times more historians and poets and philosophers than most pagans read today. If pagans had read their own pagan literature, they'd understand the historicity of the Christian Bible. They don't because they don't read their own pagan literature. I'm going to read Strabo. This was unplanned. I decided to do it at the last minute before this program. I'm going to read Strabo. Geography. Book 16, it's two pages, paragraphs 35 through 37. Now, this is, um, this is a strange view of the Bible. It shows that Strabo was really an outsider. He really didn't understand the, 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 the finer points and details of Scripture. He's giving his opinion. I, I don't know what it's based on. Did he read the Greek copies of Scripture? That's very possible. But it doesn't matter. What matters is that Strabo, this learned man, this reader of so much classical Greek literature from before his own time, esteemed the books of the Old Testament, esteemed the, the um, historicity of those books, and spoke well of them. That's what matters. And I quote, 
Now remember, this is an outsider's perspective. This is not a Christian perspective or a biblical scholar's perspective. And I quote, Moses, namely, was one of the Egyptian priests and held a part of lower Egypt, as it is called. But he went away from there to Judea, since he was displeased with the state of affairs there, and was accompanied by many people who worshipped the divine being. For he said and taught that the Egyptians were mistaken in representing the divine being by the images of beasts and cattle. Sounds kind of like Romans chapter 1, right? As were also the Libyans, and that the Greeks were also wrong in modeling gods in human form. For according to him, God is this one thing alone that encompasses us all and encompasses land and sea, the thing which we call heaven or universe or the nature of all that exists. What man then, if he has sense, could be bold enough to fabricate an image of God resembling any creature amongst us? Nay, people should leave off all image carving and setting apart a sacred precinct in a worthy sanctuary should worship God without an image. And people who have good dreams should sleep in the sanctuary, not only themselves on their own behalf, but also others for the rest of the people. And those who live self-restrained and righteous lives should always expect some blessing or gift or sign from God, but no other should expect them. Now Moses, saying things of this kind, persuaded not a few thoughtful men and led them away to this place where the settlement of Jerusalem now is. And he easily took possession of the place since it was not a place that would be looked on with envy, nor yet one for which anyone would make a serious fight. For it is rocky, and although it itself is well supplied with water, its surrounding territory is barren and waterless, and the part of the territory within a radius of 60 stadia is also rocky beneath the surface. At the same time, Moses, instead of using arms, put forward as defense his sacrifices in his divine being, being resolved to seek a seat of worship for him, and promising to deliver to the people a kind of worship and a kind of ritual which would not oppress those who adopted them either with expenses or with divine obsessions or with other absurd troubles. Now Moses enjoyed fair repute with these people and organized so ordinary, no, no ordinary kind of government since the peoples all around one and all came over to him because of the dealings with them and of the prospects he held out to them. His successors for some time abided by the same course, acting righteously and being truly pious toward God. But afterwards, in the first place, superstitious men were appointed to the priesthood, and then tyrannical people. And from superstition arose abstinence from flesh, from which it is their custom to abstain even today, and circumcisions and excisions and other observances of the kind. And from the tyrannies arose the bands of robbers, for some revolted and harassed the country, both their own country and that of their neighbors, whereas others, cooperating with the rulers, seized the property of others and subdued much of Syria and Phoenicia. But still they had respect for their acropolis, since they did not loathe it as the seat of tyranny, but honored and revered it as a holy place. 
So even though to Christians that might be a, a somewhat strange account of what we know is the biblical narrative, nonetheless, Strabo accepted the biblical narrative as history. Surely the Greeks, considering themselves to be a generally quite blonde and fair people, neither Diodorus Siculus nor Strabo could have possibly thought of Moses or the people of Judea or of Mesopotamia to have been brown-skinned aliens, especially since the people of the Exodus, as both Danos the Egyptian and Cadmus the Phoenician were accounted by Theodore Siculus, as we have just read, were explicitly esteemed to have been the forebears or even the founders of much of the civilization of the Greeks. Greek writers from the time of the 7th century BC, epic poets on down, wrote of Danos the Egyptian, whom they imagined to be the eponymous ancestor of the Danae. Danae is the Greek form of the word that we often see translated as Danans, like the Tawatha de Danan, or the Danans of, of, of um, certain translations of Homer's works. The Hebrew plural for the tribe of Dan is Dani. The Greek is Danae. They came from Egypt. Get it? The epic poets on down wrote of Danos the Egyptian. And he was imagined to be the eponymous ancestor of the Danae, the Danans of early Greek history and the Trojan Wars. They also wrote often of Cadmus the Phoenician, who is credited with bringing both arts and letters to Greece, the Hebrew alphabet. These things were never questioned among all of the early Greek poets and historians. At this point in the prophecy of Amos, we shall see the oracles which the prophet uttered against both Israel and Judah, Judah first, of course. We have already discussed the prophecies concerning the Edomites, the Syrians, the Philistines, the Moabites, and Ammonites in certain of their cities, as well as the prophecy against the Tyrians, and presented much of what can be seen of the contemporary history of those places from the ancient Assyrian inscriptions. Although they are often concise, they are certainly first-hand historical accounts. This helps to demonstrate that the biblical account of the history of this period certainly is true, and also to show that these prophecies indeed had the beginning of their fulfillment in the years subsequent to the time of the prophet. Amos chapter 2, verse 4. The only portions of Amos 
that I'm going to present tonight are these two verses, verses 4 and 5. Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of Yahweh and have not kept his commandments, and their lies caused them to err, after which their fathers have walked. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. While throughout the books of the prophets, there are many oracles against Israel and Judah for their many transgressions. Here is a similar prophecy from Hosea 8.14, Hosea being nearly contemporary with Amos. Their ministry certainly overlapped in time. And I quote, For Israel has forgotten his maker and builds temples. The historical account of the Old Testament is clear. The Israelites went off into paganism. And they were pagans wherever they are found in their ancient dispersions. The people that founded those Greek cities with Danos, the Egyptian, and Cadmus, the Phoenician, both Israelites, connected to the Exodus by Theodorus Siculus and Hecatahius of Abdera before him. They were pagans. That's why Hosea 8.14 is the explanation. For Israel has forgotten his maker and builds temples. And Judah has multiplied fenced cities. But I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour the palaces thereof. We have an account of the beginnings of the fulfillment of this oracle against Judah at 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 13 to 16. And I quote, Now in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah, and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended. Return from me. That which thou puttest on me will I bear. In other words, I'll pay you if you leave me alone. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time did Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of Yahweh and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Notice the mention of Lachish here. We're going to focus on Lachish for a while. In verse 14 where it says, And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, 
the king of Assyria was seated at Lachish at this time. The ancient city of Lachish was taken by the Israelites and fell to the tribe of Judah in the division of the land of Canaan, which is evident in Joshua chapter 15. While the Assyrians indeed took and destroyed 46 fenced cities of Judah, Lachish was not destroyed by the Assyrians. Sennacherib had laid a siege against Lachish, which is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 9. But, as it is evident in the passage from 2 Kings chapter 18, and also from Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, the Assyrians acquired control of Lachish and used it as a base of operations for their conquest of the rest of Judah. It is also evident in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 8, that the Assyrians departed from Lachish, leaving the city intact. Lachish was besieged again over a hundred years later by the Babylonians in the time of Jeremiah. And we read in Jeremiah 34, 7, and I quote, When the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, against Lachish and against against Azekah. For these defense cities remained of the cities of Judah. The Assyrians took 46 fence cities of Judah. They didn't take Lachish or Azekah. They used it as a base of operation. The cities Lachish and Azekah are mentioned again in the Persian period in Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 30. However, there, from the context of that chapter, it seems that the Lachish was not populated at that time. Rather, it was repopulated with Judahites of the return from Babylon. The Babylonians had left Lachish devoid of people. In order to gain some insight into the historicity of the accounts of the taking of Judah and the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians, we are going to examine the Lachish Ostraca. The Lachish Ostraca are pieces of pottery, or sometimes stone, usually taken from a broken vase or, or some other earthenware vessel. And the Ostraca were used for the recording of certain events or to keep certain temporary records or correspondence. They were scratched into with an instrument. The records were actually scratched into the shards of pottery or stone with a sharp instrument. They are an ancient example of material recycling. And their use was very common. The word ostraca comes from a Greek word. The singular is ostracon. Ostracon is a piece of pottery or stone, a broken piece. And they were writing on these things and using them to keep records. In Athens, in ancient Athens, ostraca were used for voting. And since they were also used by the citizens in votes 
determining the exile of men fallen from favor, from that we get the English words ostracize and ostracism. The use of ostraca for such purposes as record-keeping letters and, and, and bills and things like that goes back at least as far as 2000 BC in ancient Egypt. So the Lachish ostraca are basically a collection of pottery shards, pieces of broken pottery, with scratched-in letters which were used for correspondence. The provenance of the Lachish ostraca, sometimes also known as the Lachish letters, are well known. Their authenticity is not questioned. And the findings again help to establish that the narrative concerning the history of Lachish as presented by the Bible is indeed accurate. And that Israelite worshippers of Yahweh dwelt at Lachish right up to the time of the Babylonian sieges upon the remnants of Judah left by the Assyrians. The following is an explanation or an introduction to the Lachish Ostraca and the text of the Lachish Ostraca. I'm taking this from ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament. James Pritchard, editor, Princeton University Press, 1969, pages 321 and 322. The introduction to the material says that these ostraca were discovered in the ruins of the latest Israelite occupation at Tel Ed-Duir in southern Palestine, which unquestionably represents biblical Lachish. The first 18 were found by the late J.L. Starkey in 1935. Three more were added during a supplementary campaign, meaning an archaeological campaign, in 1938. Most of the ostraca were letters, while others were lists of names. But only a third of the documents are preserved well enough to be reasonably intelligible throughout. Nearly all of the ostraca come from the latest occupation level of the Israelite gate tower. And they are generally placed immediately before the beginning of the Chaldean siege of Lachish, perhaps in the autumn of 589 or 588 BC. Since they form the only known corpus of documents in classical Hebrew prose, they have unusual philological significance quite aside from the light which they shed on the time of Jeremiah at the on the time of Jeremiah. There's a paragraph regarding the first publications and, and, and the bibliography, bibliographical material relating to the Lachish Ostraca, which I won't read here but it will be included in the notes to this program. Lachish 
Lakeish Astrakhan 2, they're numbered, right? We're not going to read them all because they weren't all reproduced. Only the ones that were most legible and readable were reprodu reproduced. Lakeish Astrakhan, Astrakhan being the singular of the word Astraka, number two, an inscription which reads, To my Lord, Yeash. Yeash is the actually the word, the ancient Hebrew equivalent of the word translated Joash in the Bible. Joash is actually kind of screwed up. To my Lord, Yeash, may Yahweh cause my Lord to hear tidings. Now the word is actually Yahweh in the Ostrakhan in the inscriptions. May Yahweh cause my Lord to hear tidings of peace this very day. This very day. Who is thy servant but a dog that my Lord has remembered his servant? May Yahweh afflict those who report an evil rumor about which thou art not informed. Lakish Ashtrakhan 3. Thy servant, Hoshaya, hath sent to inform my Lord Yeash. May Yahweh cause my Lord to hear tidings of peace. And now thou hast sent a letter, but my Lord did not enlighten thy servant concerning the letter which thou didst send to my servant yesterday evening. Though the heart of thy servant has been sick, since thou didst write to thy servant. And as for what my Lord said, and that word Lord here probably comes from the Hebrew word bow, or from the Hebrew word Adon. And as for what my Lord said, do you not understand? Call a scribe. As Yahweh lives, no one has ever undertaken to call a scribe for me. As for any scribe who might have come to me, truly I did not call him, nor would I give, him, give anything at all for him. In other words, he wouldn't pay him. And it has been reported to thy servant, saying, The commander of the host, Coniah, the son of Elmathan, has come down in order to go into Egypt. And unto Hodaviah, son of Ahijah, and his men, has he sent to obtain, and is an ellipsis, and the words, from him. And as to the letter of Tobiah, servant of the king, which came to Shalem, son of Jadua, through the prophet, saying, Beware, thy servant has sent it to my Lord. Now this ostracon seems to refer to certain events recorded in Jeremiah chapter 36. Several of these names are also found in Jeremiah at this very time. In Jeremiah chapter 22, there was a grandson of Hosiah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoiakim, who's named Coniah. This Coniah cannot be him. And also a son of Josiah named Shalem. This Shalem is not him. There is also another Shalem in Scripture, whose wife was a prophetess, mentioned in 2 Chronicles 34.22, and who may also be the Shalem of Jeremiah 32.7. This Shalem here may indeed be him. They're both connected to prophecy. Lake Shastakhan number four, and I quote,
May Yahweh cause my Lord to hear this, this very day tidings of good. And now, according to everything that my Lord has written, so thy servant done, so has thy servant done. I have written on the door according to all that my Lord has written to me. And with respect to what my Lord has written down about the matter of Beth Harafid, there is no one there. And as for Semachiah, Shemaiah has taken him and has brought him up to the city. And as for thy servant, I am not sending anyone hither. And there's, an, there's words in brackets which are assumed which say today, but I will send. And then back to the text, it says, tomorrow morning. And let my Lord know that we are watching for the signals of Lachish, according to all the indications which my Lord has given. For we cannot see Azekah, Azekah being the other fenced city of Judah which had survived the Assyrian onslaught. But now we're in the time of the Babylonian invasion. We're on a precipice of the Babylonian invasion. And that can be told not only from the archaeological context of the finding, but also from the context of, of what the Ostrakhan is actually saying and several of the others. Lakish Ostrakhan number five. May Yahweh cause my Lord to hear tidings of peace and good this very day, this very day, that's always repeated in the language. Who is thy servant but a dog that thou hast sent to thy servant the letters? And there's an ellipsis. Now thy servant has returned the letters to my Lord. May Yahweh cause thee to see, and there's an ellipsis. How can thy servant benefit or injure the king? Lakish Astrakhan number six. To my Lord Yeash, may Yahweh cause my Lord to see this season in good health. Who is thy servant but a dog that my Lord has sent the letter of the king and the letters to, of the princes, saying, Pray, read them. And behold, the words of the princes are not good, but to weaken our hands and to slacken the hands of the men who are informed about them. And now, my Lord, wilt thou not write to them, saying, why do ye thus even in Jerusalem? Behold, unto the king and unto his house are ye doing this thing. And as Yahweh thy God lives, truly since thy servant read the letters, there has been no peace for thy servant. Lakish Astrakhan number eight. May Yahweh cause my Lord to hear tidings of good this very day. The Lord has humbled me before thee, Nebadiah has fled to the mountains. Truly I lie not. Let my Lord send thither. And finally, Lakish Astrakhan, number nine. I'm sorry, there's one more after this, a short one. May Yahweh cause my Lord to hear tidings of peace. Let him send. And there's an ellipsis. Fifteen. And there's an ellipsis. Return word to thy servant through Shalmiah, telling us what we shall do tomorrow. 
And finally, Lakish Astrakhan number 13, which only says, they did not wish to do any work, and there's an ellipsis, and then the, the phrase, and Semakaya, and that's the end. Bayardo Lakish Astraka. In addition to demonstrating the historicity of the biblical accounts, the Lakish Astraka show that the attitudes concerning religion reflected in the Bible at the very time that the Bible says they were, had indeed existed among the people. There's no doubt as to the historicity of these things. Archaeologists generally date the siege of Jerusalem by Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, to about 701 B.C., it may have been as early as 715 B.C. There are a lot of problems with dating in this period. The following is from Isaiah chapter 36. This may be tedious. I'm going to read the entire chapter. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defensed cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish, from Lachish, he's using Lachish as a base of operations, this is Isaiah, to Jerusalem under King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, meaning to the king of Judah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? I say, sayest thou, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebels against me? Lo, thou trusts in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt. Whereon, if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all that trust him. Now I have a note. In the July-August 2002 issue, a Biblical Archaeology Review on page 42, and I would have had the, the article perhaps posted with this podcast, except that my, um, unfortunately, my supply of, my, my collection of archaeological magazines and, and journals are still in New York, right? And I'm in Virginia. On page 42 of that issue, July-August 2002, Biblical Archaeology Review, are described authentic seal impressions found in and around Jerusalem, which are known by their wording to have belonged to Hezekiah, and they contain depictions of Egyptian scarabs. These certainly seem to be an indication of Hezekiah's attempt to ally himself with Egypt as a political defense against the Assyrians. So yes, we have archaeological evidence of that. Back to Isaiah chapter 36, verse 7. 
But if thou say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, ye shall worship before this altar? Now therefore give pledges, or hostages, right? I pray thee to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee 2,000 horses, if you are able on your part to set riders upon them. In other words, if he can indeed muster a cavalry troop. The Assyrians didn't think he could. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants, and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? And am I now come up without Yahweh against this land to destroy it? Yahweh said unto me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then said Eliakim and Shebna and Joah unto Rabshakeh. They were embarrassed, right? Speak, I pray thee, unto thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it. And speak not to us in the Judahite language, in the ears of the people that are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Has he, sent, has he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Judahite language and said, Hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh, saying, Yahweh will surely deliver the city. This city shall not be delivered into the king, hand of the king of Assyria. And it must be noted here that Rabshakeh very impiously challenges Yahweh. And for that reason were the Assyrians destroyed not merely for Judah's benefit. Isaiah thirty-six sixteen. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and eat ye every one of his vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one of the waters of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Have any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arthad? Where are the gods of Sepharvain? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand? That Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Again, he's making a boast against the God of Israel. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, that was over the household, and Shebna the scribe and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent, and told him the words of Rabshakeh. That's the end of the chapter. 
I must add, that the outcome of the subsequent siege of Jerusalem was not quite what the Assyrians had expected, for they failed to take the city. From the inscription of Sennacherib III, there were actually two of these inscriptions, I should say, from the inscriptions of Sennacherib III, who presumably ruled, ruled Assyria from 704 B.C. to 681 B.C. I say inscriptions because there were actually two ancient and important inscriptions which contain what are referred to as the Annals of Sennacherib. And we shall read a part of the Annals of Sennacherib here. The more famous is called the Taylor Prism. And there's another one called the Oriental Institute Prism. And I quote from the portion of, of, of this inscription pertaining to the siege, the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem. As to Hezekiah, these are the words of Sennacherib, the Judahite, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities. The same testimony we read in the second book of Kings. Walled forts and to the countless small villages in their vicinity and conquered them by means of well-stamped earth ramps and battering rams brought near to the walls combined with the attack by foot soldiers using mines, breaches, as well as sapper work. This describes the taking of 46 walled cities of Judah. Without a doubt, the kingdom of Judah was very powerful at this time, but the Assyrian Empire was much more powerful. I drove out of them, he took out of them as hostages, 200,000, 150 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small cattle beyond counting, and considered them booty. Himself, meaning Hezekiah, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. I surrounded him with earthwork in order to molest those who were leaving his city's gate. His towns, which I had plundered, I took away from his country and gave them over to Metinti, king of Ashdod, Paddy, king of Ekron, and Silibel, king of Gaza. Yes, his name is Silibel. This supports the earlier contention I made in the series that the Philistines must have assisted the Assyrians in this campaign. They were being rewarded with booty in the form of the towns of Judah. Thus I reduced his country, but I still increased the tribute and the Katru presence. The word Katru, the meaning is unknown or unclear. Due to me is his overlord, which I impose later. Upon him beyond the former tribute to be delivered annually. The former tribute would have been what Hezekiah agreed to in 2 Kings 17, the 30 talents of gold, the 300 talents of silver. 
back to the inscription, Hezekiah himself, whom the terror-inspiring splendor of my lordship had overwhelmed. Sennacherib is boasting of his own presence, right? And whose irregular and elite troops which he had brought into Jerusalem, his royal residence in order to strengthen it, had deserted him, did send me later to Nineveh, my lordly city, together with 30 talents of gold, 800 talents of silver, precious stones, antimony, large cuts of red stone, couches inlaid with ivory, Nemidu chairs, Nemidu, the, the meaning of that word is unclear, so it's untranslated, Nemidu chairs inlaid with ivory, elephant hides, ebony wood, boxwood, and all kinds of valuable treasures. His own daughters, concubines, male and female musicians, in order to deliver the tribute and to do obeisance as a slave, he sent his personal messenger. Ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, page 288. There will be a PDF accompanying the post of this program on Christagenia.org, which is, a, it is actually the actual pages from the book, and you could read them for yourself. Jerusalem was able to withstand a long siege because the city had a reliable source of water, which was not discovered or cut off by the Assyrians. We see this described briefly in 2 Chronicles, chapter 32, verse 30, where it says in the Bible's usual abbreviated manner, and I quote, the same Hezekiah also stopped the upper water course of Gihon and brought it straight down to the west side of the city of David, and Hezekiah prospered in all his works. Hezekiah had a 540-meter-long tunnel cut through the bedrock in order to bring water from the Gehan Spring straight into the city of Jerusalem. All scientific testing of this tunnel agrees with the biblical account. The tunnel was rediscovered in 1838 by the American biblical scholar Edward Robinson. And today, it can be walked through from end to end. Part of this tunnel is today called Warren Shaft, the portion that connects the actual city to the tunnel. This shaft, rediscovered by Charles Warren in the late 1800s, is a mostly vertical tunnel running from inside the city of Jerusalem down to a place near the Gahan Spring. David used this shaft to conquer the Jebusites, who were the previous occupants of Jerusalem. While it's poorly translated in the King James Version, and it is, here is the, the, the um, NAS Version, the New American Standard Version of 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 through 9, and I quote. Now, now the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and lame shall turn you away. 
thinking David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind, who were hated by David's soul, through the water tunnel. Through the water tunnel. Therefore they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house, meaning into the city. So David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David, and David built all around from the Milo and inward. With this understanding that David was able to take the city by suggesting that the men go through the water tunnel. We can see that Hezekiah merely improved upon and better concealed the same ancient source of water which the Jebusites had once relied upon and which David had perceived as a weak point, thus allowing him to take the city from them. Hezekiah was shrewder and hid that from the Assyrians by digging a 540-meter tunnel, extending it, and running the spring into where the water can be taken up to the city. The failure of the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem from Isaiah chapter 37, again, I have some notes and I will read the chapter in its entirety. And it came to pass, when King Hezekiah heard it, meaning the message of Rabshakeh, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. And went into the house of Yahweh. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shedna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, unto Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz. And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and of blasphemy, for the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. Blasphemy there, I believe, is a bad translation. The the word is Strong's Hebrew number 5007, and it means scorn or provocation. It's a day of provocation. It may be, Yahweh thy God will hear the words of Rabshakeh. That's the context, Rabshakeh provoking Yahweh. That's what Hezekiah is relying upon. Whom the king of Assyria, his master, has sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which Yahweh thy God has heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left, So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah sent unto them, Thus shall ye say unto your master, Thus saith Yahweh, Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me, or provoked me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor. Now that word rumor it's another unfortunate translation. The word is Strong's Hebrew number 8052, Shemua, and it also means a report, and he shall hear a report. And return to his own land, 
and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he was departed from Lachish, departed from Lachish. Lachish and Libna are cities of Judah southwest of Jerusalem. So the king of Assyria was seated at Lachish. The inscription says it, and the scripture says it. The details are proven. The, 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 the accuracy of the details of the scripture are proven in the inscription. And he heard saying concerning Terhaka, king of Ethiopia, he has come forth to make war with thee. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall ye speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God, in whom thou trust, deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by destroying them utterly, and shalt thou be delivered. Have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed? As goes on, Haran and Rezef and the children of Eden, which were in Telassar, the children of the steppe who were in the hill of Asher. Where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arphad and the king of the city of Sepharvain, Hena and Iva? And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up into the house of Yahweh and spread it before Yahweh. And Hezekiah prayed unto Yahweh, saying, O Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Incline thy ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Yahweh, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which has sent reproach to the living God. Of a truth, Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their countries, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Yahweh our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art Yahweh, even now only. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent unto Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith Yahweh God of Israel, Whereas thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib king of Assyria, this is the word which Yahweh has spoken concerning him, meaning Sennacherib. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at thee. Whom hast thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom hast thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high? Even against the Holy One of Israel. By thy servants hast thou reproached the Lord and has said, By the multitude of my chariots am I come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and I will cut down the tall cedars thereof, and the choice fir trees thereof. Of course, they're 
allegories for people, right? And I will enter into the height of his border in the forest of his Carmel. I have digged and drunk water, and with the sole of my feet I have dried up all the rivers of the besieged places. Hast thou not heard long ago how I have done it, and of ancient times that I have formed it? Now I have brought to pass that thou shouldest be to lay waste defense cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore their inhabitants were of small power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and as the green herb and as the grass on the housetops and as corn blasted before it, before it be grown up. But I know thine abode and thy going out and thy coming in and thy rage against me. Yahweh speaking to Sennacherib. Because thy rage against me and thy tumult is come up into mine ears, therefore will I put my hook in thy nose and my bridle in thy lips, and I will bring thee back by the way which thou came. And this shall be a sign unto thee. Ye shall eat this year such as groweth of itself, and the second year that which springeth of the same, and in the third year sow ye and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruit thereof and the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward for out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant and they that escape out of the mount out of Mount Zion the zeal of Yahweh of hosts shall do this Therefore thus saith Yahweh concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come into the city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into the city, saith Yahweh. For I will defend the city to save it for my own, for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of Yahweh went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand, a hundred and eighty-five thousand men. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adremelech and Sharezer, his sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped in the land of Armenia, and Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. The text at verse 30 indicates that the siege of Jerusalem would last several years, and it did, where Yahweh says in reference to Sennacherib, that ye shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year that which springs of the same, and in the third year sow ye and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruit thereof. And then he tells him he will return him by the way that he came. So the siege certainly did last several years. This substantiates the need for Hezekiah's water tunnel with the destruction of the Assyrian army and the failure of the siege, 
the life of the kingdom of Judah was extended for approximately 120 years until it was destroyed by the Babylonians. The destruction of the Assyrian army was also the fulfillment of Yahweh's promise in Isaiah 31.5, where he says, and I quote, As birds flying, so will Yahweh of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver it, and passing over, he will preserve it. Now, I know that the Zionist acolytes of British Israel look to General Allenby's victory in Jerusalem in 1917 as a fulfillment of Isaiah 31.5. But that is only wishful thinking designed to support the wayward British love of the children of Satan. The truth is that the promise of deliverance, the as-birds-flying prophecy of Isaiah 31.5, is given in the context of the judgment about to come upon Judah and Jerusalem at the hand of the Assyrians. And here at the end of Isaiah chapter 37, we see that promise fulfilled. The word of God cannot be used to support the Zenith bastards in Palestine today and the children of the devil pretending to be Judah and the British Israel turkeys, clowns, should know it. We can't let British Israelism, which is basically Anglo-Zionism, to prevail in Christian identity. That's another matter. So there are two records of the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem. The biblical record, that of the Israelites, has the siege ending in the miraculous destruction of much of the Assyrian army, and the subsequent withdrawal by Sennacherib saves the city. However, in the Assyrian record, Sennacherib himself boasts that Hezekiah is left shut up in his capital city like a bird in a cage. No king besieges a city without counting on taking it. The Assyrian record proclaims a victory from a failed siege. No matter how the siege failed, it failed. By that alone, it is evident as to which of the two records represents a major early example of what we today would consider to be political spin. The Assyrian version is spin. Hezekiah was shut up like a bird in a cage until Sennacherib left in defeat. While there are no surviving Babylonian records of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, which happened about 120 years later, 120 years after the failed siege by the Assyrians. Various miscellaneous inscriptions found in Babylon do support the biblical account of certain of its circumstances. Jehoiachin was the next to last king of Judah. He was very young when he ascended to the throne, but remained a short time before the Babylonians took him captive and put Zedekiah, his brother, in his place. Zedekiah was the last king of, Jerus- of Judah in Jerusalem. He only reigned for 11 years. 
This is found in 2 Chronicles, chapter 36, verses 9 and 10. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And when the year was expired, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the goodly vessels of the house of Yahweh and made Zedekiah his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, lasted only about 11 years. When all of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians and much of the city's population and the outlying remnant of Judah was carried off into Babylonian captivity circa 586 B.C. We have inscriptional proof, inscriptional evidence that Jehoiachin, or Jehoiachin, however you want to pronounce it, did indeed live in Babylon. From ancient Near Eastern texts, Relating to the Old Testament, page 308, from a section containing historical documents from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II, we see proof of Jehoiachin's presence in captivity in Babylon, among other things. I'll read the introduction to these arms. Scant. These are scant inscriptions, but they are inscriptions nonetheless. And I quote, From administrative documents found in Babylon, some information concerning the fate of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, can be gathered. This text and translation are by E.F. Widener, originally in German. It was entitled Jo Yo actually Yoyachin, King of Judah. Yoyachin Konig von Judah in Babylonischen Keilschriften Texten. I can't pronounce German, I'm sorry. I have German blood, but I certainly don't have a German tongue. I could translate it Jehoiachin, King of Judah in Babylonian inscriptions. That's what it says basically. Ancient Near Eastern text goes on to explain that these things were published several times. It gives a biblio some bibliographical material. It says that the texts, these are from a small group of texts excavated by the German expedition in Babylon dating from the 10th to the 35th year of the book of Nezar II. The tablets list deliveries of oil for the subsistence of individuals who are either prisoners of war or otherwise dependent upon the royal household. They are identified by name, profession, and or nationality. The two tablets so far published also mention besides Judeans or Judahites, inhabitants of Ashkelon, Tyre, Biblos, Arvad, and further, Egyptians, Medians, Persians, Lydians, and Greeks. 
I'm only going to say here that text number 28178, and this will be published in my notes with this podcast when it's posted on christogenia.org. The obverse, number two, lines 38 through 40, are listed, and these are provisions which are dispensed to people who are either prisoners of war or otherwise dependent upon the royal household at Babylon. It lists four sila. The word sila is a measurement which is unsure of, of its exact translation, so it's not translated. Four sila to eight men from Judah. It lists two and a half sila of oil to the king of Judah. To the sons of the king of Judah, I'm sorry. Text number 28186, that's probably a museum inventory number. Reverse side 2, lines 13 through 18, lists oil dispensed to carpenters from Arvad, dispensed to men from Byblos, dispensed to Greeks. Yes, Greeks were that far east at an early time. I will present evidence some, at some point in the near future of Greek mercenaries fighting for the Babylonian armies at Jerusalem. It lists ten sila to Yaku-ukinu, son of the king of Judah. Yakudu in Assyrian, or Yahudu sometimes. It lists two and a half sila for the five sons of the king of Judah. These inscriptions certainly show that there were the king of Judah and his sons who were dependent on the household of the Babylonian king as hostages or as prisoners of war and support, fully support, the biblical narrative concerning the kings of Judah, the kings of Judah who were taken off to Babylon as prisoners, without a doubt. There's a pseudo-academic persuasion commonly identified as the school, as if such a thing could exist, of biblical minimalists. These men, most of them Jews, get paid large salaries to sit in universities and they say the Bible. I wonder why. One of their primary contentions is that the kingdom of David and Solomon never existed. They offer the idea that some scribe named Ezra invented the ancient kingdoms in an endeavor to give the various tribes in Palestine a reason to unite under a common identity. So they claim it's all a myth. They should be the myth. We owe them a holocaust, the bastards. First of all, that is absolutely contrary to, to the very words of Ezra himself, who obviously sought to isolate his own tribe from its neighbors. However, much worse... It is all nothing but a collection of obvious lies. 
from the Greek records of Strabo and Diodorus Siculus to the Assyrian and Babylonian inscriptions dug out of the ground nearly 2,500 years after the facts, we can see that the people of Moses and the ancient kingdoms of Israel and Judah indeed existed. And they existed, and their history was much like we find in the Hebrew scriptures. With a few exceptions where, the, where books were added surreptitiously to the Bible, Esther is, a sur, Esther is definitely a spurious book, without a doubt. I'll do a program on that soon, perhaps this year. The Bible, as we know it, is totally reliable as a historical book. Thank you for listening. I will be back here next week to continue basically where I'm leaving off. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. I'll be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren against the Paul Bashers, part 13. Good night.